The sermon text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Have you been treated um, unfairly, maybe criticized inappropriately? Have you faced um, things being said about you that were not true? And, and what did you do? How did you respond? How did you want to respond to this kind of criticism that you received? You know, when I was, uh, I think it was when we were just about finished packing the truck before Carol and I headed out of seminary to the first church in Michigan, uh, one of the professors came up to me and he just said, um, hope you get alligator skin real fast. And I uh, thought kind of a interesting way of parting, you know, that, you know, think of alligator skin being kind of rough and... Uh, and hard, and preparing me for the criticisms and the things that will be said that are not true, perhaps, or at least exaggerated. And, um, and I just remember being impressed by that's the last thing he said to me. Now, it's not just for the pastorate that you face these things. You all do, I'm sure, in your own line of work, and perhaps even in your family. What do you do? Do you let those things go? Sometimes you just kind of endure it. Sometimes you have to engage it. And that's what we see actually today with Paul. He engages it. You know, Paul, we're entering chapter 2, probably the most personal part of Paul's letter, chapter 2 and 3. He's really explaining, he's challenging these accusations against both the nature of his ministry and the nature of his absence, particularly in chapter 3. Hey, you know the story at this point in, in the Thessalonian church. He came in Acts, it's all recorded for you in Acts 17. He comes, he plants a church, it grows quickly. But quickly comes the opposition. The opposition comes and kind of stirs up a riot, throws some of his friends before the magistrate. And the opposition got so great that, that they fleed. Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they took off at night. They escaped in the, eve, in the night. 
Well, boy, at that point, the accusations and the criticisms began to fly. You know, they talked about Paul being kind of one of these charlatans, one of these, you know, religious teachers that come along, you know, try to sway the uninformed to get money or sex or satisfaction or influence. And where is he now, they're asking. Why didn't he come back? Why did he take off on you? You can just well imagine. We don't know if it's the Jews that were jealous of Paul. We don't know if it was the Gentiles who were threatened by this religion. And we don't know if it was maybe even some members in the church. Some members in the church who said, hold on now, we're enduring all this opposition. Where is he? He's gone. Well, here's the punchline. They questioned the legitimacy of his love for the church and by implication, the gospel. And so look what Paul does. Uh, Paul actually says, remember who I was. Six times in these 12 verses, he says, remember, you know, you know. He says it repeatedly, you know, you recall, you're witnesses to these things. In other words, he's saying, look at my life. Now, I don't think Paul's defending himself here. I think he's, I think he's really defending the nature of the gospel because he knows that if his character is discredited, so will the gospel that he preached be discredited. You really get to see into the heart of Paul in this passage, unique to other passages. You get to see what motivates his ministry. You also get to see the methods of his ministry. And what I want to do today is just take this. This is much bigger than just applying it to pastors or elders. This is about the nature of ministry. This is about the heart of God's people. And now you know, you, you'll see in chapter one or chapter 2, verse 2 there, he says that he preached in the midst of conflict. We are in unique times right now, a degree of uniqueness at least, with the COVID crisis, uh, but also with this election cycle being 90 days away. I mean, there is much conflict. There is marginalization of the Christian. And, and this is really instructive for us to kind of look at Paul's heart, how he handled these issues, and how we might actually learn and grow from, from the same. So I want to give you four characteristics that we see here. And I want you, as we go along, to just see where you stand in relationship to them. So the first thing you see that Paul has is this. He's living with a boldness in God, a boldness in God. I mean, what I'm going to do is look at these four things in relationship to the accusations that he was facing. Uh, so the first accusation was that he, he came to Thessalonica in vain, empty-handed, without purpose, kind of. Look at one and two with me. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. So obviously they were implying it was in vain. But though we had suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of conflict. So here Paul comes, and they say he's just come in vain. What's this mean? Well, I think it just simply means that he had come without purpose, perhaps ulterior motive, perhaps selfish ambition. And what Paul does is he challenges it. He says, no, we didn't come in vain. And then immediately he goes to how he suffered in Philippi. You know, Philippi, remember, he began to preach the gospel, and then, of course, he, they cast out the demon and this one young woman who was kind of working for a fortune teller, and they get thrown in jail. He gets stripped naked, he gets flogged, he gets put in prison, he gets shackled in his ankles in the, in the inner dungeon, all without trial. And what he's saying is, I'm coming to Thessalonica with the same message and the same purpose. He goes, it makes no sense that I came without purpose, that I came in vain. Why? Who continually goes into suffering voluntarily when he's not gaining personally from it? 
In other words, there's no personal selfish ambition. Who walks into trouble when they get nothing from it? In other words, his suffering was proving the legitimacy of the gospel that he preached. His own suffering and yet coming in boldness shows that it wasn't in vain, that he was coming as a called and commissioned servant of God. John Calvin in his commentary says, We know that indignity and persecution weaken and indeed completely break men's minds. It was therefore a work of God that although Paul had suffered various misfortunes and indignity, he appeared unaffected and did not hesitate to launch an assault on a large and wealthy city for the purpose of leading its people captive to Christ. I mean, you know it was the boldness of God in him that would lead him from city to city preaching the gospel, knowing that he would personally gain nothing, but the gospel would go out and he would receive suffering for it. So he points to his suffering as really a badge of authenticity. Now, I know your question right now may be, well, how do I gain this kind of boldness in this culture? But before I do, I just want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of why does the gospel engender such opposition? Why can't they just hear it and press on? Why can't they just hear it like another form of teaching and that they dismiss and move on? Why does it engender such opposition? Two reasons for this. Number one is a moral reason. Remember, the offense of the gospel comes as it declares that men and women are unable to satisfy God's demands for holiness. That no one here, no one here is able to please God in his own abilities, in his own efforts, in his own efforts at self-reformation. Now, many of us may think, well, I need Jesus to help me do what I need to do to please God. That's not what the gospel's saying. Jesus is not an aid to us. Jesus is a substitute for us. And that offends the person who is morally conscious. The older brother mentality. They think they've got life pretty well in hand. It's hard to just embrace this idea, I just don't have it in me to please God. It offends people. But if it doesn't offend them morally, it surely offends them intellectually. Are you telling me I've got to believe that there's a God in heaven who sends a son to be a substitute for me? Surely God had to pick some other non-destructive way to save a people. Is God that inept that he's got to go in this direction? I, 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 can't, I can't buy that. So generally it's on a moral or intellectual framework that people struggle with this. But there's the secret of God. Because God has chosen to save us through what appears foolish to men and to women. He says this in Corinthians, he says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world, this idea of our moral repugnance or our intellectual inabilities, what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast. This is God's plan to use what seems so foolish so that we would recognize that no person by self-reformation could earn their way to God or that no intelligent person could discern their way to God. God alone saves. Salvation belongs to God. And it proves this by the fact that it's a moral it's a moral problem for some, an intellectual problem for others. But how do we gain in boldness like Paul had? 
And the way to gain in boldness, how will you be more bold? It's simply this. And it's, it's so, yeah, it's profoundly simple. It's to know God. You saw in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, it's to know the living and the true God. There is no other God. All gods are false gods. There's one God, he's the true God, and he's alive now. He is the creator, he's powerful, he's sovereign. And he has a son who is in heaven who will come again to judge the living and the dead. This truth, to know this truth. Now, now J.I. Packer makes clear in his book, Knowing God, there is, a, there is a world of difference. There is light and darkness, life and death between knowing about God and knowing God. I'm talking about knowing God. Knowing God. Uh, that is to have experienced God. Uh, to know God. What do I mean by that? I mean by that to know the forgiveness, the relief of our sins falling off of us. We know the burden has been removed. So it's more than knowing God forgives. I feel like my sins have been taken away. Or that I face trial or some sort of of struggle, and yet I feel, I, I enjoy the peace that comes upon me as God comforts me. To know God is to be in a personal relationship with him where you see him as a living, active Father in heaven who is ministering to you by forgiveness and grace and mercy and love and comfort. That's what it is. It's the affections which bring us into the deep knowledge of God. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, Religious Affections, he says this in in his own kind of convoluted, but I think it can be clear way. It says, but it is doubtless true and evident from the Scriptures that the essence of all true religion lies in holy love. Do we love him? This is how we know, if we know God, do we love him? I'd encourage you to read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Grab a friend in this church. Just read through it chapter by chapter. Carol and I, before going to bed, probably three or four nights a week, we just listen to part of a chapter. Not a whole chapter, we can't last that long. Uh, but we just listen to a part of it. it. It just reminds us of the nature of God, why we love him, why we come to him for forgiveness. You have to know God if you're going to have a boldness in God. Knowing about God won't give you the boldness. You have to, do you have that active relationship? I mean, you, you know about the things of God, but do you know him? Do you know the forgiveness? Do you know the joy of having a father in heaven who loves you? Do you have a, a holy love for him? That's how you know that you know God. Okay, second aspect of Paul's ministry, he knew God. But he also lived to please God. Again, the second accusation was that he came with impure motives. He came kind of deceptively. Look at three and four with me. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. In other words, they kind of, they kind of maligned Paul, saying, you know, he's, he has these impure motives. That word impurity has a sexual connotation. So maybe he was trying to work his way into the homes of these wealthy older women, or, or the, these selfish ambitions, seeking his own glory. They questioned his motives. 
they said that he was deceptive. That, that word is bait. It's like bait. You know, if you're a fish and you see a worm, you think, hey, there's dinner for me. But there's a hook in there, isn't there? And you don't see that. And what they're saying about Paul is he's trying to trick you. He's trying to trick you. He's not really for your good. And Paul's saying, he challenges it. He says, not true. We've been approved by God. God called him. God commissioned him. Paul is not bringing his own gospel. He's not bringing a word for himself. He's bringing the gospel of God. He says that three times in the passage. He's speaking about God's gospel. He's been approved and he's been entrusted. He wasn't entitled. He was entrusted with the gospel. Paul saw himself as a steward of the gospel. Paul saw himself as being given something that he has been called to share with others. Paul knows that he's accountable to God. Paul knows that he will stand before God one day, because notice in the text it says God judges the hearts. God will look at Paul. God will judge Paul's ministry, and Paul knows that. Paul isn't seeking to please man at all. He's not seeking to please himself. He's seeking to please God. This is fundamentally important for ministry and for us to survive in any sort of conflicted world. What motivates you to minister? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Why am I doing, why am I coming to church? Why am I coming to church? Why am I going to maybe greet this new person even though I'm shy? Why am I going to engage in this ministry that maybe I don't feel super comfortable doing? Uh, why am I going to ask this person to disciple me? Or why am I going to offer to meet with the person? Why do we do what we do? We have to ask this question. Is it to please man or is it to please God? You know, the fear of man, the desire for the affirmation and the acclamation of men and women is profound among us. We want to be liked. We post something. We want to see how many likes it got, how many people are following. These are important things to us. You know, it, it is something, the fear of man is something to be feared, actually. In Proverbs 29, 13, it says that the fear of man is a snare. It's a snare. It's a trap. Now, I could explain to you all kinds of reasons why it's a trap. It's a trap just because of the fickleness of man would be one reason. Just the changing temperatures and desires and likes and dislikes of people. Uh, but, but the greater fear is that it's a trap because it dissuades you. It moves you away from God. You need to fear God. We need to fear God. You know, in Isaiah 2, 22, and I, I'd forgotten this. Carol said, you always quoted that verse a long time ago, and, I, and, and she remembered in Isaiah. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Do you look at people that way? When you're tempted to try to seek their favor, when the fear of man moves in you and you're tempted to be silent when you should speak or change the direction of your words when you should go in this direction, or, or you allow a, a person's opinion, even though you don't agree with it, you allow it to conform you because you just want them to like you. When you think about that, can you think that they just have breath in their nostrils? When God breathes, he creates things. Uh, when men and women breathe, they just exist. And they have to breathe to exist. Or in Isaiah 8, where he says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread, and he will be your sanctuary. Isn't that ironic? To, to fear, to dread the Lord, is to find him to be a place of safety. Because nothing else is feared if you fear him. I was even meditating this morning, praying for this service. And I, I just spent some time in Psalm 33. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, and whose hope it is in his steadfast love. 
fear and yet hope together. This is what makes us God-pleasers, not men-pleasers. I, I couldn't confirm it. I've always said it was Kierkegaard that said that we ought to live as we believe we have an audience of one. That's God. Th that he is our audience. You're not the audience. I'm not the audience for you. That the audience of one is God. That's how we live. This really works in line with what Paul said in Galatians chapter 1. He said, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This might be a, a point of repentance for you. Or let me give you another book, Ed Welsh, when, when people are big and God is small. Maybe grab a friend. If you don't do it with knowing God, maybe do it on this one. When people are big and God is small, that we can begin to crush the fear of man. Because if you fear man, you won't fear God. And Jesus says, don't fear man. He can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. That's God. Uh, so this was an aspect of Paul's ministry. He had a boldness in our God, and he lived to please God. To what degree do you get up in the morning and say, God, I do want to please you. I want to glorify you. I pray before my feet hit the floor. I just say, God, I want, I want everything I do to glorify you. I know that I'm going to sin. And I'm going to repent for it. But I, I want to live that way. I, I want to aim that direction. So that's the second thing, to live pleasing to God. Thirdly is to live uh, with gentleness. Uh, look at five days, because Paul was being accused of being a bit of a huckster. Of being a huckster who uses flattery and words to kind of ingratiate himself. Look at five to eight with me. He says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You know, they, they, were, they pulled out all the stops here on Paul. He's seeking his own glory. He's, he's greedy. He's after personal gain. He's after personal glory. He doesn't care about you. And what Paul says, no, he, he challenges it. He says it's not true. We did, we did not come demanding, saying we're apostles of God. You know, he, he didn't pull the A card like, hey, this is who I am. I got the role. I've got the title. He says, we're gentle among you. You don't usually think of Paul that way. He was gentle among you. And then he brings this comparison of a nursing mother. I mean, can you find anything more gentle than a mother cradling her child, about ready to feed the child, to give literally of herself for the child? He was gentle. And his gentleness wasn't just an attitude. It was an action. Notice in verse 8, he says, we didn't just give you the gospel, we gave ourselves. And literally, we gave you our very souls because you have become dear to us. Or literally, the word is, is you became beloved to us. That love is the fuel of his gentleness. John Calvin speaks about this being complete, voluntary submission. Paul was submitting himself to them. He was making himself disposable to them. This isn't a clinical ministry. This isn't a numbers and metrics ministry. This isn't how many we getting in, how many we losing, what programs we have. This is about loving people, about being gentle with them. It draws your mind right to Christ, I think, who 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, and, and even humbling himself, lowering himself even to death himself. This is the nature of Paul's ministry. You know, gentleness is so important for ministry, particularly in a world of great conflict. To see gentleness when there is such harshness, harshness in the church and outside the church, there's such hard to see gentleness is huge. Now, you know, I, I was, I've been kind of convicted by this passage. I was kind of raised with more of a fisher-cut-bait mentality, kind of black or white. And that works in a locker room between halves of a football game. It probably works on a battlefield. It doesn't always translate so well into pastoral ministry. And uh, I think I've prayed. I, I want to be tender. I want to be more gentle. I know that's an area of growth for me. It's been pointed out. I've grown from people saying that to me. And I, I, I'm sure, I know, that I've heard people oftentimes maybe being more clinical in an approach to an issue rather than gentle in an approach. I've got to grow in that. How does gentleness meet itself out in your life, in the words that you use? Are, are your words gentle or are they more inflammatory? Or are they more sarcastic? Or do they stir up more than they calm down? A gentle answer we know turns away wrath. Or, or even in how you speak about other people, is it gentle? Or not just the way we speak, what about our social media presence? Particularly with those with whom we disagree. How, how, is, it, is it gentle in our response? Is it deferential? You know, we're in the middle of this COVID election cycle coming up. How will we be known next year on how we handled ourselves in, in the last six months of this year? I, I'm speaking looking forward now. How will we be known? Will we be known as gentle? You know, in, in the positions that we hold, whether it be political issues or whether it be how we handle ourselves with, do we wear masks? Or do we have mandatory masks at the service? Or do we maintain social distance? How, how, how do we handle those things? Can they be done with gentleness? Or are we so firm and entrenched in what we think? We all know that the medicine is complicated on it. People much smarter than everybody in this room are confused over it. Can we be, gent can we be seen as gentle? Can we voluntarily be submissive like he's saying here? kind of at your disposal. How, how can I serve you? I tell you, in a world of harshness, this would be evangelism on steroids. So there's a gentleness there. Again, this might be a point of repentance for us. What position have we taken? That's, that's good. It can be a point of great debate. But how have we taken the position? And has it been done in gentleness? Has it been done in deference to others? Okay, the fourth thing we see in Paul's attitude is that he lived to be an example for others. Again, by implication, you see in verse 9 that it seems that he was challenged, he was criticized for being a loaf, to being someone that just was a freeloader. Look in 9 through 12 with me. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses, and God also how holy and, and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, 
who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So it seems as if uh, Paul's being criticized for not working hard. And he says, you know, you remember, we worked day and night. Paul was a tent maker. So he would work during the day, and then he would, of course, preach at night. I don't think Paul is saying that a worker is not worthy of his wages. He does say that in First Timothy. But I think for Paul's sake, as a traveling ministry in a culture where there are hucksters traveling around, seeking to profit from whatever message they were promoting, he wanted to distance himself from that. And so he, instead of receiving help from this church, he, in fact, just worked himself. But he didn't just work hard as a good display of the gospel. He also lived well. You see, he said, you were my witnesses. You're my witnesses, and God is too. He says how we lived righteous and holy and blameless. Paul, I don't think in any way, is saying he's perfect. We know in 2 Timothy, he said he was a chieftain of all sinners. What's he saying here? I think he's saying I was just live above reproach. Did Paul sin? Absolutely, and he probably repented. He probably said, you know what, I blew my top just then. Would you please forgive me? I, I, I didn't think of you at all. I was just thinking of myself. So to live above reproach doesn't mean to live without sin. It just is living without consistent behavior that needs being called out. So when you sin, you repent. That's what it means. So he, he said, I lived and I worked before your eyes so as to be an example to you. He was like a father. Doesn't a good father do this? I mean, if you were to envision a good father, wouldn't you say it was a man who wanted to work diligently to provide for his family and who lived diligently so that he could say to his children, imitate me, follow me, watch what I'm doing. He won't be perfect. I'm going to have to repent to you, which, by the way, is also instructive. I used to tell Carol, if we don't repent to them, they'll never learn how to repent. How many of you had parents that would regularly repent to you for their sins? I ask people that question frequently, and you cannot imagine how many say, yeah, never did. Did they not sin? Do we not sin? So even living, we can say to people, imitate me, knowing that we're not perfect. Because when we fail, we repent. And by that, we, we instruct them how to repent. Otherwise, I don't know. Who likes to repent? Nobody does. So what he's saying here is, I'm like a father to you. I'm working hard. And I'm living well so that you can imitate me. But he did more than just try to be an example. He was also instructive. Look at the end of the passage. Because he says, I encouraged you. I exhorted you and I charged you. Uh, Paul, this is where you know the, the gentleness of a mother is met with the firmness of a father. He charged them. He said, you need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So like a good father, he says, you've got to be doing these things. There's a place for that in Christian ministry to say, this is what you need to be doing. I've been watching you. This is what you need to change. We need that in life. It doesn't feel good, right? It isn't like a warm back rub from Carol when she's giving me her godly correction. It doesn't feel good, but I need it. I need it. So wouldn't it be amazing to be able to say, to appeal to others to follow you? But we should be able to do that. You know, the professional has a public persona and a private life, and they're rarely close to each other. The Christian doesn't have two lives. He has one. She has one. We are to be an example. That's what I think the Scripture calls us to. We are to example for others what it means to live in a manner worthy of God. You know, I, I may have shared this with you. I forget, but it happened years ago. 
And uh, we just enrolled the kids into the school in the first church in Michigan, and we went to the school orientation. And there was hundreds of people. It was in a gymnasium real big. And uh, I remember sitting in the stands. I was, we got there late, and I was you know, last chair in the last corner of the highest part. And, and, and uh, after it was all over, somebody spilled something on the gymnasium floor. It was far away from me, probably a couple hundred feet away. And, of course, nobody did anything. You all look at it. You know, you ever see that? Someone, they all look at it like we're, like, it's like, well, just pick up a mop, you know. But, but everybody walked around it. And, walked, and I see this guy in a suit go to the closet, get a mop and a bucket, clean it up. And he, he didn't look at anybody. He didn't notice who was paying attention. He just did it and put the, and I said, I got to meet that guy. So I went down and I, I went and introduced myself to him. I just said, man, your example was profound. It was huge. He ended up becoming a friend and actually coming to the church. Uh, sweet guy. And he was true to his character. But it, it was just, it really impressed me. That's what our lives are to be. They're to be these examples of how to live in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called. You have been called, if you're a Christian, you've been called to a kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we ought to live in a manner worthy of it. Will we fail? Absolutely. Do we repent? Yes, we do. And we show the truthfulness of the gospel because we have the freedom to tell, I have sinned against you, I'm sorry. And we have the confidence to know he's going to forgive us. Can you, I, I often ask you, grab a friend or grab a spouse. I would love to know if you, if you do it. I trust some of you do. But I would ask you today, even to grab your spouse or to grab a friend and say, do you see me walking with moral integrity? Do you see me exercising financial integrity? Do you see me using flattery to get towards ends that are selfish? Do you see me using any deception or any impurity to somehow be better through it. Ex allow them to weigh into your life. And, and, and try, again, sanctification can hurt. When, when someone corrects you, when Carol brings a correction to me, it never feels good, but I need it. Because we have these blind spots. I mean, when you come to church, the last thing many of us do is you look in the mirror or you check out the rearview mirror. Why? Because you can't see what you can't see. You need the mirror. But we're to be each other's spiritual mirrors, to help each other. But we do it in gentleness, right? We do it because they are dear to us. We love each other. Uh, but that's how we help one another in the example. So let me charge you. Because sometimes when I charge people, they get the back up. Like, what's he telling me to do that for? But this is, this is the example that we have to do it that we have to lovingly, graciously, even boldly, but gently, but firmly, we want to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So listen, uh, we're going to go back out into a harsh world, a very confused world. And, and, and I just want to remind you, let us, this is the heart of the great apostle Paul, but it really is the heart of Christ. And there's a boldness in the gospel of God. Right? There is a desire to please God. Jesus said to do the will of the Father was my food. And there was a gentleness. Jesus, you know, it's amazing. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul, in dealing with people who had deconverted and had become enemies of the cross, here's what it says about him. He says, here it is. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. 
And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He is weeping over those who have deconverted and become enemies and probably opposing Paul. He's weeping for them. There is a gentleness that is to be in us with even people who oppose us, even within this church and even those outside the church, a gentleness. So, so let's see the boldness, the pleasing of God to be the first order of business, the gentleness and the living as example. But let's take even this week to consider, Lord, ask the Lord for wisdom. Right in Psalm 139, search me and try me, see if there is any way in me that's wicked and lead me to everlasting life. So ask God, God, reveal to me, where am I being a poor example? Let's take a moment, maybe ask God for grace. Maybe this is a point of conviction or maybe encouragement for you. Or perhaps even you're not sure, do you know God? Well, then come and ask us. Ask somebody next to you, another member of this church. I mean, don't let that question just linger without someone weighing in with you. Then I'll close this in just a few moments.